Today I'll be speaking with Peter Singer. Peter is certainly one of the most famous living philosophers, and he's been very influential on public morality, both with respect to the treatment of animals and in this growing movement that I spoke about with Will McCaskill on a previous podcast known as Effective Altruism. He's a professor of bioethics at uh, the University Center for Human Values at Princeton. He's the author of many books, including Animal Liberation, which is often considered the, the silent spring of the animal rights movement. He's also written The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do and The Ethics of What We Eat and many other books. His most recent book is Ethics in the Real World, 82 Brief Essays on Things That Matter, and uh, I highly recommend it. Peter and I talk about many things, and uh, we ran out of time, frankly. We had two hours booked, and as you'll hear at the end, I come up against the brick wall of time constraint and um, really was wanting to talk about many more things. So I'll have to bring Peter back at some point. We spend the first half hour or so talking about how it's possible to talk about moral truth. And uh, if that's not to your taste, if you're not really worried about how we can ground our morality in universal truth claims, you might skip 30 minutes in or so uh, where we start talking about questions of practical ethics. And we, we touch many things, the ethics of violence, politics, free speech, euthanasia. There's just a lot we cover. And I hope you find it useful. And if you do find conversations like this useful, you can once again support the podcast at samharris.org forward slash support. And as always, your support is greatly appreciated. And it's what allows me to clear my schedule to do this sort of thing and keeps us all ad free. And now I bring you Peter Singer. So I have Peter Singer on the line. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam, for having me on the podcast. It's good to be talking with you. Listen, everyone will know who you are, but perhaps you can briefly describe what you do at this point and, and the kinds of questions you focus on. Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, and I also have a regular visiting position at the University of Melbourne in Australia, which is where I'm originally from. Um, I work in ethics. Uh, I've been interested in a range of different issues. Uh, I wrote a book called Animal Liberation, published back in 1975, that some regard as having started off the modern animal rights movement. Mm. Uh, I've also been interested for many years in the obligations of the affluent, people like us, to people in extreme poverty elsewhere in the world. Uh, and I've written on issues in bioethics, uh, questions about the sanctity of life and uh, a range of other questions that come up in that field. Yeah, and your, and your new book is entitled Ethics in the Real World, and you know, I'll have a link to it on my blog, and I, I certainly encourage listeners to, to get that. It's, it's great because it's divided into these 82 very short chapters, literally like you know, three-page essays on philosophical questions, and again, emphasis is on the real world here. So you tackle questions like, you know, should poor people be able to sell their organs? Is it more ethical to eat fish than cows? You know, should Holocaust denial be a crime? These are all questions where public policy and how people actually live their lives are just explicitly in play and just super digestible philosophical essays. So I, I recommend people get that 
if I'm not mistaken, Peter, you and I have only met once, right? I, I think it was at this Arizona event organized by Lawrence Krauss, which was... That's right. Yes, that's the only time we've actually met in person. Yeah, which unfortunately, it was, it was titled The Great Debate, somewhat pretentiously perhaps, but it was, it was you and me and, and Steve Pinker and Lawrence and Patricia Churchland, I think, and a few other people. And that's available for people to see on YouTube. If I recall correctly, I, you and I got somewhat bogged down disagreeing about the foundations of morality and human values. But I, I had the sense at the time that we were talking past one another and getting derailed on semantics more than anything else. So I'd like us to start with the topic of, of the foundations of morality and to answer the question or attempt to answer the question, how is it possible for something to be right and wrong in this universe or good and bad? And then move from there into what is the relationship between the claims we make about good and evil and right and wrong and facts of the sort that fall within the purview of science. And, and then once we have a, just a concept of goodness in hand and how it relates to truth claims, then I want to go on to talk about just the practical reality of, of doing good in the world. And this will lead to questions of effective altruism and population ethics and moral illusions and, and all the rest. So, so this first question. I put to you is, is how is it that you think about moral truth? Does moral truth exist? And if it does, what is the relationship between the, the, the true claims we make about good and evil or right and wrong and facts of the sort we talk about in science? Right. That's a, a good question and a very large question. It's one that I've grappled with on and off for most of my philosophical career. And I have changed my views on it uh, significantly in the last few years. So uh, earlier on in my career, I would have said that there are no objective truths in ethics, um, but uh, we can prescribe that certain things be done and we can prescribe them not just for ourselves or out of our own interest, but we can prescribe them in a way that is, uh, to use a term that my former Oxford supervisor, Professor R.M. Hare coined, uh, universalizable. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're the same for everyone, but what it means is that I can express them without referring to myself or without using terms like I or proper names. So for example, if I uh, were to say, as uh, Donald Trump has recently been saying, it's, it's fine for me not to pay any taxes, um, then I would have to say uh, it's fine for anyone in my situation not to pay taxes. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, one might not be so keen to do that. You can think of other circumstances in which people might say even worse things. The, the Nazi might say uh, it's good for me to kill Jews. Um, but then we, we can ask the Nazi to imagine, well, suppose you suddenly discovered, actually, that you're of Jewish ancestry or mm. you're parents had hidden this from you, does that mean that it's fine for any Nazi to kill you? Um, most Nazis probably would, would think twice. There might be a few ideological fanatics who would still say yes, um, but most people wouldn't. So that was as far as I thought you could go, really, that it did depend on people's inclinations and prescriptions, and there was no objective truth in it. But um, I now think that that's not correct. I think that there are some claims which you can say are truths, that they are things that we can reflect on and that strike us as 
simply undeniable, if you like, as self-evident, although that's not to say that everybody will immediately agree with them. But an, an example would be that uh, inflicting agony for no real purpose, let's say inflicting agony because it, on someone else because it brings you some kind of moderate enjoyment, mild enjoyment, uh, uh, that that's wrong. Um, uh, and what's really, what's really at work here is the idea that, that agony is something that's a bad thing, mm. that, that the world is a better place if there's less agony in it. Um, and I do think that that's, that's a very hard claim to deny, uh, that, uh, the fact that someone is agony is in agony provides us, provides anyone really with a reason to try to alleviate that agony or to stop it. Um, and the fact that doing an action will cause someone to be in agony is a reason not to do it. Not necessarily an overriding reason, but it is a reason against doing it. But now, so you say your views here changed recently. Well, I guess, well, how recently? Are we talking in the last, since, I, since I, actually I saw you in Arizona or before that? Probably when I saw you in Arizona, uh, I was to some extent in transition. I, I, and it's been a sort of slow transition. Um, I was always trying, uh, even, you know, maybe 30 years ago, I was trying to find ways in which you could tighten up the arguments, uh, that you could bring in some role for reason in this. So that, um, the, the problem with the position that, uh, my mentor, RM Hare had developed was that, uh, he said that, uh, universalizability just depended on the concept of ought, the, the, the basic moral concept, ought, good and right incorporated this idea of universalizability. And the problem with that was that if somebody said, okay, so I'm just not going to use those words, right? Instead of saying you ought to do something, I'll say you schmort do something, or, you know, that's schmite. Um, I'm just going to invent my own concepts. Um, and now it's fine for me to not pay any taxes. Um, uh, and I don't have to say that anybody else in my position, you know, also doesn't have to pay taxes or, or any of these other implications. And that just didn't seem good enough. That seemed too easy a way out of moral arguments. So um, I was always looking for something uh, a bit stronger and looking at whether you could argue that uh, there was a rational requirement uh, that was corresponding to this universalizability. And uh, so I guess that I, I only wrote about this in a book called The Point of View of the Universe, which is a co-authored book with uh, a Polish uh, philosopher, Katarzyna de Lazari Radek, uh, came out in 2014. So it's, you know, perhaps a year or two before that, um, in, the perp in, in thinking about that book, I had already come to the conclusion that, that you can argue that there are some things that are... Uh, moral truths or self-evident. Um, uh, the 19th century philosopher Henry Sidgwick, who we discuss in that book, uh, describes them as moral axioms. Mm. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's within the last, let's say, five years, definitely, that I've come to this position. So if I'm not mistaken, this is anchored in a kind of consequentialism or utilitarianism. So what do you do with the claim that consequentialism is itself just an expression of a mere preference and is unjustifiable? Well, I, I don't think that that's correct. I think that, um, I mean, there are different forms of consequentialism. That what, they, what they have in common, of course, is the view that what we ought to do is the act that will have the best consequences. 
and then the discussion is what do we mean by best consequences mm. but um but i think that that's right i th i think that uh when you think about uh different actions if it's clear that one act will have better consequences all things considered than any outcome um i'd be prepared to say that it's then true that that act is the right thing to do mm. now obviously you know that can be denied by people who think that there are some moral rules which we ought never to break, no matter what the consequences. Um, that's not a view that I accept. I, I would try to argue that uh, my view is is true, but um, that really has to be at least in part by undermining the foundations of the alternative view. It's not uh, it's not so self-evident that, that the consequentialist view is right that one can just state it and everybody will see it to be right uh, because you know partly because there've been a, a whole history and culture of moral thinking which is based on rules. Um, moral rules do have a certain social purpose. They're useful. They're, they simplify decisions. We can't calculate from first principles every time we act, which act will have the best consequences. Mm. So it's not all that surprising that people sometimes think that these rules have a kind of inherent objectivity of their own um, and that we should obey them no matter what the consequences. Um, but that, you know, that, that's the kind of argument you need to have. I think we largely agree here. I, I'm, I'm tempted to not spend a lot of time fishing around for areas where we might disagree in metaethics, but I think most of the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with my views on on morality and, and moral realism as I lay out in, in my book, The Moral Landscape. I guess just a couple of points I would make here. I think when, whenever I hear someone say that they are not a consequentialist, you know, they hold to some rule that they think is important regardless of consequences. What I believe I have found, without exception, in those conversations and in reading the work of people like Kant and, and you know, other famous non-consequentialists, is that they smuggle in consequences into the, the primacy of the rule. That if the, if the rule had bad consequences, they would never, it would never suggest itself as a reliable basis for ethics. You know, so, so if Kant's categorical imperative reliably produced needless human misery that was otherwise avoidable, no one would think that the categorical imperative was a good idea, right? And so if you drill down on why people are attached to a rule, you tend to get justifications for it which have to be cashed out in the form of consequences, whether they're actual or potential. Has that been your experience or, or do you see it differently? I certainly think that the, the tendency of most of uh, the rules that are part of everyday morality is uh, to produce better consequences. I, I think you're right about that, and I think you're probably right that any rule that reliably produced more misery uh, would be dropped um, and, uh, and a, a different rule would be substituted. But, but of course, what does often happen, and Kant is a good instance of this, is that you have a rule that generally has good consequences, like the rule that you should tell the truth, and then somebody imagines a situation where uh, a would-be murderer is comes to your house and asks if you have seen so-and-so. And it so happens that so-and-so knows that this guy is pursuing him and has uh, asked if you will hide him in your basement. Now, you know, most of us would, of course, say, well, 
it is justified to lie in those circumstances, but Kant actually sticks to the rule and says, mm. no, it's wrong to lie even then. So part of the problem with the people who are not consequentialist, or some of them at least, is uh, they want to stick to their rules no matter what, even if the general tendency of the rule is to have good consequences. Um, and so I, I would describe that as a rule that we should apply in everyday life, um, but not as a rule we should stick to no matter what. The other thing here which gives us this sense, or gives many people the sense that there can't be such a thing as moral truth, is we, we value differences of opinion in philosophy, and, and in particular moral philosophy, in a way that we don't in the rest of our truth-claiming about the world. So if someone comes to the table saying that they have a very different idea about how to treat women, we should make them live in bags, as the Taliban do, and this is how we want to live, and there's no place to stand where you can tell me that I'm wrong because I'm just being guided by my age-old moral code, for which I even have a religious justification. Many people in the West, I think largely as a result of what postmodernism has done to the humanities, but perhaps there are other reasons, imagine that there's just no place to stand where you can contradict that opinion or dismiss it. You can't actually say, well, some people are not adequate to the conversation for reasons that should be obvious. And yet we do this in science and everywhere else. I mean, just in, in journalism or in, in history, in any place where people are purporting to make claims that are true, it, when someone shows up and demands that their conspiracy theory, theories about alien abductions or whatever it is, get, get taken seriously, we just say, you know, sorry, these, these views are so uninteresting and so obviously incredible that they don't actually constitute any kind of rejoinder to what is being said here. And so it's, it just, it's very easy to disregard them. Now, occasionally some you know, outline view becomes credible for some reason, and then it, it subverts what we think is true. And that's, that's a, just a process of criticism that just has to run its course. But I feel like in moral philosophy, many people have just tied their hands and imagine that everyone gets a vote in moral epistemology, and it's an, it's an equal vote. And so, you know, there's just, you know, what, what Derek Parfit thinks about morality doesn't matter any more than what Mullah Omar thinks, and everyone is on all fours in their truth claims. And that's, I think that's been very destabilizing for many people in the West when it comes time to talk about the nature of human values and how we can talk about them in, in universal terms. Just, you know, just the, the fact that you can still meet anthropologists, and it might even be a, still a majority of anthropologists who doubt whether a universal notion of human values is even a credible thing to aspire to. Yeah, uh, I mean, anthro anthropologists seem particularly prone to that. Maybe it's going to occupational hazard of studying a lot of different societies. Mm. Um, and of course, you do find different particular practices in different societies, but you also find some common tendencies. Um, for example, reciprocity is pretty much a universal value. It's uh, very hard to find a society in which um, it's not considered a good thing to do favors to those who've done favors to you. And conversely, uh, that you're entitled to have some kind of retribution on those who've done bad things to you. 
Um, but that's, of course, not to say that, that this is actually the right morality. This is just to say that this is kind of the evolved morality of our species and indeed not just of our species, but of long lived social primates who recognize each other as uh, as individuals. Um, but but I wanted to get back to the, the larger point that you were making. Um, and I'm not actually I don't quite see as much reluctance to criticize ethical views of different cultures as you described. Um, I think most people, uh, for example, who are not uh, of that religious group, and it's not all Islam, but it's a particular part of uh, Islam, Mm. uh, who think that women should not go out in public uh, without, you put it, wearing a bag over themselves. Um, uh, I think most people who are not of that religious group would be prepared to say that that's wrong, that, that it's, it's wrong to treat women in that way. It's wrong to uh, deny them uh, privileges that uh, men automatically have, um, and they would reject as unethical that way of treating women. Now, what does come over the top of this is that we have, um, I think you and I would agree, perhaps excessive respect for religion. Um, and I think that comes out of a long tradition of uh, people fighting over religion and often killing over religion. And uh, at some point, perhaps, you know, around the 17th and 18th centuries, people started to say, well, enough of this, you know, I'll, I'll leave you alone to practice your religion and you leave me alone to practice my religion. And then we don't have to kill each other over it. Uh, and of course, in, in some sense, that's a very good idea that we don't have to kill each other over it. But, um, it can be taken too far. It can be taken to the point of, well, um, you know, every religion is sort of somehow good on good in itself or uh, beyond criticism in itself. And, uh, I think that that's completely wrong. Uh, but if somebody tried to put it forward as a sort of, you know, a secular belief that women should cover themselves completely whenever they go out in public, whereas men are perfectly free to display their arms and legs and, uh, so on. Um, and of course, faith. Uh, I think people would be pretty baffled by that view, and I, I don't think that they would think, "Oh, yeah, that's fine." Well, you you haven't spent as much time criticizing these views as I have, I think, in public. I would agree that most people feel that there's something wrong there, but I, I've noticed that the more educated you become, certainly in the humanity, actually not just the humanities, it's it's science as well. Humes, you can't derive an ought from an is has become this shibboleth among very educated but incompletely educated people. And well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you about that because I think that's true. Um, uh, that, that, that's, that's a philosophical claim that I think is, is defensible. I think it's defensible within a certain construal. Yeah, we, we can talk about that. But I know physicists who will say, you know, I don't like slavery. I, I personally would vote against it. I would put my shoulder to the wheel in resisting it. But I have no illusion that in resisting slavery, I am making any claim about what is true. There's just no place to stand in science to make those claims with respect to, to morality. And, and so what, what, what that does is that, that divorces morality from any conception of the well-being of conscious creatures like ourselves. And it's claiming that no matter how far advanced we become in understanding well-being and, and the possible experiences that suitable minds can have, we will never know anything about what is better or worse in this universe. 
I mean, but so my, my view, again, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because there's, a, there's so much in applied ethics that I want to talk to, to you about, but I do want to hear your pushback on the ought and is issue. Yeah. But I, I just, my claim here is that, I mean, we, we could forget about ought, as you suggested earlier, though I, I take that in a very different direction. I mean, just imagine we have no conception of ought and we have no conception of morality, but we, have, we appear in a universe where certain experiences are possible. So I, so I view morality as a, as a kind of navigation problem. We, have, we are conscious systems, and there is a possibility to experience unendurable and pointless misery for as long as possible. And then there are all these other possibilities. And my view is that anything is better than the worst possible misery for everyone. Uh, look, I, I totally agree with you about that moral judgment. And I also agree with you that understanding well-being, uh, what causes brings about well-being, what reduces suffering, how our minds work, all of that is highly relevant for deciding what we ought to do. Hmm. But um, and so I think, and I and I also think that the physicist uh, that you mentioned is wrong if he says my judgment that um, you know happiness is better than misery, let's say, is uh, uh, is not true. I, I, I don't uh, think that I can say that this is true. I, I think you can say that it's true, but I don't think it actually follows from the description of the natural universe. I, I think it follows only if you make that judgment. And I think you actually made it. You used the word better, that it's better if there's a world in which there's you know people are living rich, enjoyable, fulfilling lives than if they're miserable, suffering and so on. Um, but But we have to we have to say, well, what is that judgment that it's better? I think, I think it's a judgment that we use our reason mm. to get at. So I think that we have normative reasons, even if we didn't use the word ought, even if we decided that the institution of morality is not one that we want to be part of. I think we'd have to say, do we have reasons for acting to pr bring about the happy world that you described rather than the miserable world that you described? And I would answer... Yes, we definitely do have reasons for acting because it's a better world, but I wouldn't claim that I can deduce that reason for acting simply from the description of here's one world and here's the other. Um, there has to be, it, it's not just the description. There has to be, uh, as I say, something normative by which I mean reasons that ought to move a rational being towards choosing one world rather than the other. Right. Well, I would fully agree with that, except the reason why the is-ought dichotomy is uninteresting to me is you can't get to any description of what is without obeying certain oughts in the first place. I mean, so you, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps at some point. And so, you know, logical intuitions are not self-justifying. We just grab them and use them. And, you know, a desire for evidence why should you desire evidence? You know, what evidence are you going to provide to convince someone that they should desire evidence if they don't desire evidence for their truth claims? Or you know, what, what logical argument will you use to prove to someone that they should value logic if they don't value logic? I mean, these are, these are brute facts of epistemology, which we use without any apology, really, because we can do no other. I would just say that valuing any movement away from the worst possible misery for everyone, right? I mean, so again, just, you know, I want our listeners to absorb what those words mean. Imagine a universe where everything that can suffer suffers for as long as it possibly can 
as deeply as it can, and no good comes of it, right? There's no silver lining to this. This is a perfect hell for all conscious creatures. That's bad, if the word bad is going to mean anything. And getting out of that situation is good, and it's something you should do if, if, if words like good and should mean anything. And that, in my view, that's all we need to get this consequentialist machine okay, turning. Okay, I, I don't think we're disagreeing uh, on anything very significant here. Perhaps we're disagreeing on whether uh, these are, are facts that science describes or whether they're uh, reasons that are part of uh, what it is to have reasons for action. Um, hey, I don't think we disagree there because I mean the, the point of confusion that I think you and I got bogged down by the first time around was in a very different definition of the word science. I mean, I, I was always using science in a much more elastic sense to co coincide much more with the way you're using the word reason. And so I'm not just right. talking about people in white lab coats who can run experiments immediately on any given hypothesis or ever. I mean, so there, so there are truth claims we want to make or could make about the world, which we know we would never test scientifically, but we know there are facts of the matter. And the fact that we can't get the data in hand doesn't make the, the, the truth or falsity of those claims any less assured. So, I mean, the, again, the, the one I use all the time, and I might have even used it with you in Arizona, was, you know, what was JFK thinking the moment he got shot? Well, there's an infinite number of things I know he wasn't thinking. I know he wasn't thinking, I wonder what Peter Singer and Sam Harris are going to say about what I was thinking. And you just, you, the list can just grow from there. And that's a, that's a claim about his inner life, of what it was like to be him, that is ontologically subjective, right? I'm making a claim about his subjectivity and on some level the state of his brain, but it's epistemologically objective in that it's, which is to say it's true. You know, it's just, there's every reason to believe it. And people doubt that you can make claims about human subjectivity that are wherever you stand, surviving all of the tests of credibility that claims about physics and chemistry need to survive. And, and I mean, that's my particular hobby horse, that people feel that this area is just, by definition, less clear, less truthful, less grounded in the kinds of cognition we use to do science. But again, I just think there's, there's nothing more sure than some of these claims we could make about morality once we look at the intuitions we're using to make the claims. The intuition that two plus two makes four and, it, and that this abstraction is generalizable. So it works for apples, it works for oranges, it works for boats. That intuition that is at the foundation of arithmetic, again, is just something we apes are doing with our, with our minds and it, it works. But I, I just think it's not in a different sphere from the kinds of intuitions you and I are talking about with respect to it is good to reduce pointless agony, all things considered. Yeah, we're, we're, we're certainly agreed on that. And I think we're agreed on rejecting uh, the various forms of subjectivism uh, and, and relativism that uh, you know, the postmodernist ideas in particular have uh, encouraged some people to have. Uh, I find that you know, qu quite disappointing in a way. You get people who come out of backgrounds where they're doing uh, cultural studies uh, and they come up with the same sort of views that um, 
freshmen come up to Princeton with and we discuss in early seminars and, uh, you know, they usually fairly rapidly see that those views aren't really tenable, that they have implications that they don't want to accept. Um, but, uh, there are certainly more sophisticated forms of that kind of relativism and subjectivism that, um, uh, are still around. And, uh, I think we're, we're agreed that, uh, ethics is a field in which there are, there are truths, uh, exactly, you know, how we classify those truths, um, uh, is, is, is a fine point, but mm. I think probably it needn't really delay us any longer. I think we've, uh, clarified where we are. Okay. So, so let's move forward with that consensus in hand. So we, we want to reduce suffering, all things considered, and maximize the well-being of, of conscious creatures. And we don't need to waste much time justifying that going forward. So that, now what do you do in a situation where people claim that suffering is being produced, but you feel, and, and suffering is in fact being produced, but you feel that the basis for the suffering is illegitimate. Let's say it's based on a religious dogma. So the, the, the example that comes to mind now is the cartoon controversy. What if a consequentialist, you know, philosophically minded, but still doctrinaire panel of Muslim philosophers came to you and said, listen, whenever you cartoon the prophet or tolerate others cartooning the prophet, you produce a tremendous amount of suffering in millions of devout Muslims suffering that, that you can't compensate us for, suffering that we are committed to feeling based on our beliefs, and therefore it is just wrong to do this, and you need to conform your freedom of speech to our religious sensitivities. How do you think about that? I do think about that in terms of the consequences of the action. Um, so I'm not somebody who's going to say, now I have a right to free speech, and if I choose to exercise that right to free speech, um, I will do so no matter what the consequences. Um, the, the, the question to be considered is, is what are the consequences of restraining uh, free speech in this area? Uh, and there's no doubt, I think, that uh, these cartoons are offensive to Muslims and um, they will cause some hurt feelings. Um, Perhaps more serious than that, uh, because you know people can get over their hurt feelings. I'd say more serious is the fact that some of them may then uh, engage in in protests that turn violent, uh, may attack uh, Christians if there are Christians or, or let's say non people they consider to be infidels, not necessarily Christians, but um, not Muslims anyway. Mm. Um, if they're living in their country, may attack and kill them. Um, these things have happened, and. Uh, I think that that's uh, something that anybody thinking of publishing these cartoons needs to give a very significant weight to. On the other side, um, I think that uh, religious intolerance is a major source of, of suffering in the world. And uh, of course, in the case of, of uh, militant Islamic views, we've seen very clearly in recent years how that can cause uh, specific uh, violent attacks, which clearly cause a lot of suffering on the people who are killed or injured and the, um, the families and relatives and, uh, and so on. So, um, the, the question is, uh, do we want to just accept that those religious beliefs cannot be criticized, uh, 
and that therefore they will continue forever or indefinitely. I guess nothing lasts forever. Um, uh, or do we want to see whether we can in some ways uh, encourage fewer people to hold those beliefs or at least encourage people to hold them in a more open, tolerant form? Um, and then, of course, and, and I think the answer to that is yes. I do think that we should be free to criticize religious beliefs, uh, especially those that do a great deal of harm. Um, and then the further question is, uh, is the use of ridicule an effective means of achieving that end? And on that one, I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, so in other words, if, if it were a question of publishing arguments against uh, the, the claims made by uh, in Islam, um, publishing historical studies about uh, how the Quran came to be written and uh, publishing studies of the Quran showing uh, contradictions or inconsistencies, which of course exist in the Bible and in any, any of these substantial texts uh, from long ago are going to be demonstrably inaccurate in some places. Um, so uh, is that the way we want to try to persuade people to shift their religious beliefs? Or, or should we try um, actually ridiculing those beliefs? And um, my, my guess is that probably uh, both have some effect, but I'm not sufficiently convinced at the moment that uh, th that ridicule is so much more effective as to outweigh the serious consequences that it can have. Yeah, I guess my intuition here is that the rule of privileging free speech over everything else is just so useful that the need to rethink it in, in any local case is almost never pressing. I think free speech being essentially the, the equivalent of you know, sunlight spread on bad ideas, it's such a, a reliable mechanism for bringing bad ideas to light, criticizing them, getting others to react to them, that the moment you, you begin to look for local instances where you need to calculate the harm done by exercising it, I think it, it's you know, almost always counterproductive. I mean, for instance, there's one area here where I know you and I agree, because I've read what you wrote in your most recent book, but the, the idea that Holocaust denial should be illegal, right, because of all the, the harm it does both to the, the survivors and their descendants, and also just the, the fact that it seems to encourage, or at least is imagined to encourage the survival of these noxious views, you know, Nazism and neo-Nazism in Europe, you and I both agree that it shouldn't be illegal and that you shouldn't put people in prison for denying the Holocaust, that, that the appropriate response there is ridicule and the, the, the attendant destruction of their reputation and, and just talking more about the evidence for the Holocaust and, and just the, the normal process whereby we expose bad ideas to criticism and use the, the immune system of conversation to, to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, I, we certainly agree about that example. And I think that um, the, the way to deal with Holocaust denial is to simply show the evidence that the Holocaust existed and that evidence is totally overwhelming, whereas locking somebody up who denies the existence of the Holocaust probably just encourages uh, conspiracy theorists to think, um, oh, well, if they have to pro prohibit people denying it, that must be because um, there isn't really good evidence that it happened. Um, so that's a case where we're completely in agreement. But I'm not sure that, uh, you know, if you're saying there is no case where 
a restriction of freedom of speech is justified, then I disagree. Um, and I disagree with the kind of case that uh, John Stuart Mill, who of course is a famous defender of freedom of thought and expression, um, in his book on liberty, um, carved out an exception mm. where he said that, uh, you know, in his day, corn dealers were very unpopular. It was thought that they were hoarding corn, profiteering from it and starving the poor. So, um, he, he gave the example of somebody who standing in front of the house of a corn dealer addresses an excited mob saying that corn dealers are starving the poor or robbing the poor or something of that sort. And he thought it was legitimate to prevent that speech taking place. On the other hand, he said, if in different circumstances, somebody wants to hand out a leaflet uh, expressing exactly the same views, but not in front of the house of a corn dealer and in front of an excited mob, um, then that was perfectly legitimate. And, and there was a, a right to freedom of thought and expression that extended to expressing that opinion. Now, of course, uh, times have changed somewhat and uh, we have instant communication uh, anywhere. And uh, so the case, of the, uh, the case of the cartoons, which are then we know going to get spread over the internet and, uh, and read about or reported in uh, countries where there is a lot of uh, militant Islamic thought, um, may have a similar effect uh, in terms of inciting a mob to uh, attack and kill, as I say, uh, the people they regard as infidels um, or representatives of the government where the cartoons are published or whoever it might be. So um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the exceptions uh, ought not to extend here. Not, not that I really want to see a law against those cartoons. Um, that might be a step too far and might be difficult to say exactly what is legitimate um, uh, ridicule or satire and, and acceptable. But I, I would, I think if I were an editor and I were, were aware that of what the consequences were going to be, if I, let's say, had reliable evidence that they would cause the death of, of hundreds of innocent people, hmm. um, I would choose not to publish those cartoons. I would agree that if you are going to make the causality absolutely clear and say, well, somebody is going to die if you publish this cartoon. We know that. Well, then that it becomes difficult to justify publishing it. But then we're always dealing in probabilities. And if the probability is high enough, as it probably is in this case, you could reasonably expect that people will riot and someone will get injured or killed as a result. But the thing is, where it puts us in a position where a whole civilization, a whole societies can be held hostage to the whims of, in this case, religious maniacs. But I'm, I'm, I'm by no means just focusing on, on the specific case of Islam. It's just anyone could announce Unabomber style, if you say X or you don't say X, I'm going to kill someone. And there's just something so corrosive about that. And, the, and it can be so consciously and cynically used against us again, until the end of the world, that it's tempting to, to just say, well, sorry, we don't play that particular game. And the, the, the game we do play is we basically talk about everything. And we encourage you to talk about everything. And you will feel a lot better once you do. The other thing that's implicit in, in having a, a position of the sort we have sketched out here, where we think that moral truths exist and, and it's possible to be right and wrong or more or less right and more or less wrong about what a good life is, that entails the claim that 
certain people and even whole cultures may not know what they're missing. You know, what I would want to claim here is that a religiously blinkered culture that feels no affinity for freedom of speech and thinks that cartoonists and novelists and other blasphemers should be killed for saying the wrong thing about the provenance of a certain book or about a certain historical figure. These people don't know what they're missing and they don't realize they don't realize how much of a price they're paying for this attitude toward freedom of thought and freedom of expression. And on some level we know we're right about this. We know we're on the right side of history and we have to encourage, cajole, browbeat, and ultimately even coerce people to get on the right side of history. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I, I largely agree with what you say there. And I don't think that, uh, you know, if somebody is trying to blackmail us into not saying something by, by, by deliberate threats and is using that as a tactic, um, I don't think we should yield to that. Although, there might be a significant cost. But but obviously, once that succeeds, then it's going to be a tactic which will be used over and over again. And uh, freedom of thought and expression is something that uh, is really important to, to defend. I, I certainly agree about that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really the rather different case that I was talking about where it's not a deliberate tactic, it's just a, a reaction. And it's specifically um, about cartoons. It's It's not about expression of uh, ideas. Uh, it's not about being able to criticize the religion. Um, I certainly don't want to see any religion insulated from criticism um, because I, I do think that there's uh, a lot of harm that, that flows out of that. Uh, so if it gets to that point where people are saying, you know, if you even dare to say that um, it's not the case that every word in the Quran is true and uh, ought to be followed, uh, you know, clearly we're not going to play that game. Um, we are going to be free to criticize uh, whatever religious texts um, people put up that uh, that we disagree with. That's a, a very important and, and fundamental freedom uh, and something that uh, we should defend, even if there is some cost to doing so. Yeah, well, I, I would just argue that the cartoons were of a piece with that larger consideration. In fact, they were even less of a criticism than the the criticism that you would want to defend, which is, I mean, this is just the mere, in many cases, the mere depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, not even a critical one. I mean, there are people exactly, but but um, but if that if the, if it's just particularly that that causes offense, then you know, why, yeah, and that causes a particularly you know violent kind of reaction, then why not leave the image out and stick to the arguments about uh, you know the nature of the sacred texts or the nature of the doctrines or how they came to be formulated or why they're harmful to people and, you know, point out that it doesn't look like God's particularly blessing um, people who are um, followers of Islam as compared to the rest of the world. Doesn't that make you think that maybe this is not somehow the only true religion? Um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, right. we can yeah, no, no. I, I, unfortunately, it's not the only thing that causes offense. I think we we generally agree there. So now, if you picture our world becoming much better than it is in moral terms, what do you picture there? I mean, what what are the most important ways our morality, just speaking, you know, globally, collectively, can improve? And 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 just what what does the world look like at that moment? Well, the world uh, takes much greater notice of uh, suffering and misery 
wherever it's happening and uh, to uh, whoever it's happening to or to and when I say whoever, I don't only mean human beings. I mean non-human animals as well. Um, if But if we are talking about human beings, uh, whether they are close to us, whether they are, for example, uh, fellow Americans or whether they are people living in distant countries whom we will uh, never meet. And, uh, uh, you know, we we still we have the view that it's bad, that um, there should be avoidable suffering. Um, and for that matter, avoidable premature death. Um, so uh, I would see this as a world in which we use our resources more effectively than we are now in order to assist people in extreme poverty, uh, to help them to live better lives, to help them to have uh, enough to eat, adequate health care, education for their children, um, and uh, opportunities by uh, hard work and diligence to get out of poverty, uh, because I think global poverty is one major source of, of avoidable misery. Uh, it would also be a world, as I was saying, in which we extend our concern to non-human animals. So we would not have a world in which, uh, as we currently do, something like 65 billion animals are raised and killed for food each year the vast majority of them living miserable lives confined in, in factory farms in intensive farms, uh, often crowded. So they don't really have room to walk around. Um, uh, and the whole system being in any case, a, a net waste of food, uh, a net causing net food loss because we have to feed these animals grain, which we could otherwise eat directly ourselves. So, um, so I think uh, it would be a world that avoided uh, those practices, the practices associated with producing animal uh, foods for, for us to eat when we don't need to, a world in which we do much more for people in extreme poverty, and a world in which uh, we look at other areas where uh, people are suffering for no good reason. Um, another one of those, for example, that's been in the news uh, quite a bit over the last few years uh, is decisions at the end of life to when people decide that their quality of life has fallen to a point where they no longer think it's worth going on with, perhaps they're terminally ill, perhaps they're not mm. terminally, but incurably ill. Um, and, uh, they say that's enough. I don't want to continue, uh, laws that prevent somebody helping them to die in a dignified and humane manner are again, just, uh, laws that pointlessly, prolonged suffering. Um, nobody benefits from it. Um, uh, in fact, the, the rest of us, it typically harms because there's, we're, we're spending uh, resources on uh, the health care of people who don't want to go on living anyway. Um, but the major reason for, for changing the law, of course, is, is because it's the people themselves who don't want it. They're, they're the, the victims of it. So, so in, in, a, in a world that was morally better, we would be looking for these areas of life where we can uh, effectively reduce the amount of suffering in the world. Mm. And once we'd, uh, found all of those areas, then I think we would also be looking at areas where we can increase happiness and, and joy in the world, where we can, uh, give people lives that they enjoy more. So, uh, essentially, I, you know, that, that's how I would see moral progress as, uh, reducing avoidable misery and suffering and, uh, where possible, making people 
happier, um, more fulfilled, more satisfied with the life they're living. Is this phrase expanding the circle of our moral concern? Does that originate with you? It doesn't originate with me. Um, I took it from a uh, a writer called W. E. H. Lecky, uh, who wrote in the I think the first decade of the 20th century, so around 1900 to 1910, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and he wrote a uh, a wonderful book, uh, which if you haven't read it, I really recommend, called A History of European Morals. I think the full title is A History of European Morals from, uh, hmm, from I'm not sure exactly, from Augustus to... Um, uh, so basically, it's, it's it mostly focuses on the... Uh, the the Roman Empire or the um, the early Christian era, mm. and it has uh, fascinating discussions um, about morality at that time, about the early Christian morality of the the uh, people uh, who went to the desert and uh, you know stood on poles yeah. and starved themselves and let lice grow on them and whipped themselves and all of this you know completely bizarre um, kind of idea that uh, that this was somehow a good thing to do. Uh, but but he also does talk, for example, about uh, enlightenment, uh, more enlightened treatment of animals, um, and uh, he talks about expanding the circle of morality to others, to first from the tribe to the larger society to the nation state, uh, mm. and so on. And um, so I took it from him and I popularized it, I suppose, in my own book, The Expanding Circle. But um, yeah, I think that is part of moral progress. Um, and if people say, well, how far should it expand? I say it should include every sentient being. So it should include every being capable of feeling pain, capable of feeling that their life is going better or worse from their own subjective point of view. And of course, that includes um, uh, many non-human animals of various species, maybe not everything that is zoologically an animal, but uh, yeah. a, a great deal of them. It would include aliens if we find that there is sentient beings elsewhere in the universe. Uh, it would also include uh, computers or robots if uh, they became sufficiently developed to convince us that they were conscious beings who's had a subjective perspective on their lives. Yeah, well, I, I want to touch on all those specific topics, but let's stick with it. The, con- the basic concept of expanding the circle. What you run into there, it seems, of necessity are all of the political impediments to doing that. I mean, you, you can there are two levels on which we can improve morally, that each of us can become moral philosophers or better moral philosophers personally, and we can fine-tune our ethical code and treat people better and decide what to eat or not to eat so as to produce less misery. But the big swings in human flourishing would be when we make these changes at the level of public policy and the tax code and what nation states decide to do and not do and the kinds of wars we fight or don't fight. And that brings in politics. And, you know, politics, for obvious reasons, are on everybody's mind at this moment. You and I are now talking on the day that there's going to be the third presidential debate between Trump and Clinton. Do you have any thoughts about what really appears to be a kind of crisis of confidence in our current political institutions and just a an abysmal lowering of the standards of political discourse. What would a successful system look like, and and just what you just how do, how do you view the our moment politically? Uh, 
You're right. Just at the moment in the United States, it's it's not a good political moment. Um, but uh, although there are many there are many negative things that one can say uh, about where we are politically and about the short sightedness and the self interest uh, that comes through in politics, um, I think that there are you know if you look at it over a, a longer term trend, um, I think that gives you room for some sort of hope anyway, for less despondency than you might otherwise have if you just look at the uh, immediate goings on. Uh, because I think the effect of policies uh, largely has been to improve the way things are in the world. Um, uh, ironically, one of the things on which both Donald Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders uh, agreed was that trade, America's trade policy should be aimed at benefiting Americans. Um, and I think that that's not right. I mean, one can easily understand why politicians facing American voters hmm. may say that. But uh, surely in designing our trade policies, we should at least give some weight to the impact on the 7.3 billion people in the world who are not Americans as compared to the 300 million or so who are. And in fact, the uh, opening up of, of trade, uh, particularly, I guess, uh, in terms of trade with, with China and other parts of East Asia, but also with, with Mexico um, and other countries, has actually um, significantly benefited uh, many poor people in the world. So um, we have seen since the 1980s a quite significant de decline in uh, not only the absolute number of people in extreme poverty, but also the uh, proportion of the world's population uh, who are in extreme poverty. And uh, you know, that's surely a good thing. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that despite the objections that have come from uh, both Trump and Sanders, that uh, America's trade policies will continue to look outward in, in various ways and will... Uh, make it easier for people elsewhere in the world who are, who are extremely poor to, to get work um, that can provide them with enough to feed their families on. Uh, that seems to be a good thing. Um, and there are various other policies which, on, on which I see signs of progress. Um, in the, on the case of, of animals uh, we were talking about before, um, they don't really get mentioned in uh, elections uh, much, but um, not in the United States anyway, but uh, through lobbying of corporations by organizations like uh, the Humane Society of the United States and the Humane League and Mercy for Animals and a variety of other groups. Uh, one after another, these corporations have agreed to phase out their use of animal products from the most cruel forms of confinement. So from the battery cage in which hens mm. can't even spread their wings from uh, the individual stalls or crates in which breeding sows can't turn around, can't uh, even walk a, a step or two. Um, you know, many corporations, McDonald's, Walmart's, uh, major supermarket chains like uh, Kroger's and Albertsons have um, said that they will phase out the purchase of products from these systems. So we're making progress in other ways uh, there, even if not through the political process. Uh, and of course, the other area we talked about, uh, physician assistance in dying is something which which uh, California 
recently uh, voted to have uh, legislation permitting, and that legislation is now in force. So um, uh, that's another good good step forward, and uh, we've seen a similar step in Canada. So I'm, you know, I think there are lots of opportunities to make progress, mm. and. Uh, Despite all the demagoguery and the uh, absurdly low level of the political debate that we've had in for this election, um, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really hostile, uh, or, or I should say, I'm not really um, disappointed in in the longer term progress that we have been making. I, I think it gives us uh, occasion to hope that that we are making moral progress in general in the long term. It almost seems despite ourselves. Well, just despite some elements of our institutions, I would say, not necessarily despite ourselves. The thing that worries me, and this election is is really the crystallization of it, but it's been worrying me and, and I, I think many people for some time, is that there's the assumption that more information and more access to it would be, it really just kind of cuts against what I was just saying about free speech in a way, the assumption that that simply more talk would almost by definition lead to an increased ability to persuade people of things that are clearly true or untrue or, you know, against believing things that are untrue. That assumption is showing signs of being disconfirmed. I mean, just that when you look at people's lives on the internet and the way in which they can just disappear for months and years into an echo chamber where they're just their worldview becomes more or less hermetically sealed from any kind of intrusion of facts from the outside. I mean, it's just paradoxical that it, it, we're living at a moment where it is. I mean, it's easier than it has ever been to disconfirm an untruth or to show the evidence of needless human misery being created somewhere. And yet, the difficulty we're seeing in persuading people across ideological lines. It's seeming more and more intractable. I mean, I, you know, so to take one example, you know, because I'm very often on the, the front lines of controversy, and as I know you've been in a slightly different mode, but, you know, I hear from people who believe things that, I mean, these are otherwise apparently sane and even intelligent people who believe things that just on their face are so, should be so impossible to believe, but there, there's, there's a, a culture now of conspiracy thinking that is, you know, ramified by the the occasional conspiracy that is brought to light, obviously, but it, it just it seems completely unconstrained by any sane principles of thinking. And so I'll hear from someone who'll think, you know, in the in the aftermath of the Newtown shooting, for instance, that that was a hoax, that there were no children killed there. That was just a hoax concocted by the Obama administration to justify taking our guns, right? So, I mean, there are people who have these conversations in deadly earnest online, and they even get in touch with me insisting that I have this wrong, or the 9-11 truth conspiracy, or, I mean, there's many of these things, and many of these ideas abut credible ideas that we do want to be able to talk about, particularly in, you know, I mean, like the, the issue of the problem of political Islam, you know, that that is a real problem that we have to talk about. But if you make a slightly lateral move in that conversation, you find yourself in the company of people who see conspiracies everywhere. And it's becoming very difficult to debunk these conspiracies, or, or there's no debunking 
that is ever satisfying to someone who holds these views. And I don't know, I mean, maybe the world was always this way and it's just becoming impossible to ignore now, but it is disconcerting. I mean, I do think the world was always this way. And, uh, you know, you've talked about particular conspiracies and particular people who are hermetically sealed in an internet bubble. But, um, you know, if you think of, of uh, Europe just a couple of centuries ago, then there were rural villages who were hermetically sealed in a Roman Catholic bubble. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they believe things that I think are just as incredible as uh, the idea that uh, the shooting at um, uh, the Sandy Hook shooting was a was a hoax. You know, I mean, the, uh, the various ideas about, um, let's say, I don't know, uh, the Virgin Mary ascending bodily to heaven or, um, you know, there's a whole, whole host of these ideas of miracle cures, of... Uh, uh, all of the kinds of things that uh, uh, were widely believed in Europe a couple of centuries ago. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people never really got them to to be questioned um, until, say, the 18th century maybe, when some different ideas started around, but then in, in more isolated rural areas. Uh, not even then, and perhaps still today, some of these things are quite difficult to question. So... Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is worse. The internet makes it different and there's particular new twists and new ideas that people have. But uh, fortunately, it's a relatively small number of people who believe these bizarre conspiracies. You may, you may see more of them than I do because of the circles that you move in and mm. because of your, uh, you know, people think, I guess, that if you're critical of uh, militant Islam, then you're going to be sympathetic to some of these other ideas as well that don't really have much connection with it. But I think if you look at the larger picture, actually there's probably more people who are thinking rationally and open to evidence than there, than there have been in previous times. It's easy to be hopeful when you roll back the clock a couple of centuries or, or even, even less and see how we were thinking and behaving. And I do follow someone like Steve Pinker, largely on that point, that things are, are moving in the right direction. To focus perhaps disconcertingly on a narrow political question for a moment, but, but it's, it connects to more general principles. What are your thoughts about Edward Snowden and what he did? I'm interested to know what you, you think about it, but also just how do you think about it? I understand you may not know what, what in fact is true there, but what, what would cause you to judge him to be a hero or a traitor or something in between? Well, I, the, the term traitor isn't one that would come to mind for me because um, I don't think he betrayed the country. I think that he thought that he was acting according to the highest principles of the United States Constitution in terms of freedom of information and uh, the idea that uh, you can't really have a democracy if uh, the vote of the citizens are, are uninformed about important issues. So I certainly would uh, reject the, the terminology of traitor. Mm. Um, how I think about what he did, though, is, um, again, unsurprisingly, going to depend on what I think about the consequences of what he did as compared to the consequences of any other options that might have been open to him. Uh, so... One big consequence is that we know about the government's uh, security programs, uh, monitoring uh, our communications, um, and the result of that has been some some legislation restricting uh, that monitoring, uh, how effective that is going to be. 
I don't I don't really know. I'm not capable of knowing. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's claimed that uh, not only is it decent voting U.S. citizens who now know about this monitoring, but terrorists know about it as well. Um, terrorists may take steps to avoid being monitored because they know more about the program. Uh, and in addition, if the program is restricted, then uh, the claim is that it becomes harder to discover uh, further terrorist plots. Uh, those are difficult claims to assess. I have talked to some people who know a lot more about the US intelligence than I do. At least one of them uh, said that there was no good evidence that this intelligence had led to um, foiling any plots. But, um, you know, really, I, I don't know. I suppose, though, I'm I would say that I, th I think that what Snowden did was perhaps not sufficiently thought out in those terms. Um, hmm. you know, that is, I'd like to know what information did he have about the uh, likely impact of the program and did he weigh that against simply the principle that the public ought to know about this? Hmm. Um, because uh, I think that's, that's how it should be weighed. Now, maybe after you weighed it, you would come out with the idea that uh, the public knowing about this is more important than any benefits that had been obtained by it or that were likely to be obtained from it in future. But, um, you know, too often there is, as we were talking about before, in terms of moral rules and ideas about rights and principles, too often there's just this idea that, well, the public has a right to know uh, and therefore I'm going to release this information uh, and I don't care what the consequences of it would be. Um, that's That's not the way in which I evaluate the decision. So I, I ask because I, I'm looking for how you bring in the, the ethical significance of intentions. And you clearly do because it's, it's the way you ruled out him being a traitor. Presumably you accept his stated motives or something like his stated motives. Whereas if he, if his, in, in his interviews, he had said, I, you know, wanted to destroy the United States and I thought this was the best way to do it you would be more inclined to view him as a kind of a prototypical traitor. So in, intentions are doing some work that is distinguishable from the consequences in the, in the world outside the, this person's mind. So let's just take two cases. Let's say that what Snowden did was on balance obviously good and no one was harmed and society will be better as a result, but he did it with the intention of destroying the United States and causing great harm, right? That's one case. The opposite case is obviously he was he intended to do good. He had every reason to think he was going to be doing good, but as luck would have it, he created immense harm by leaking this information. So those are two very different worlds and two very different Snowdens. How do you think about the role of intention in judging various actions to be good or, or bad? Uh, intention is is critical in judging the agents. Uh, so what I think of Snowden would very heavily depend on his intentions. Uh, although in the case where he intended to do good but it worked out terribly, um, I might want to know, well, you know, okay, so his intentions were good, but how careful was he to find out what the likely consequences of his actions were? Uh, so negligence is not exactly intention, but it's certainly culpable. Mm. Um, so that's one question. What do we think of Snowden himself? Uh, and intentions are very relevant. What do we think of the act? Um, did what he did, the release of the information, was that the right thing to do? 
Um, that doesn't depend on his intentions. That depends, uh, in my view, on the consequences of uh, the release of the information. But still, if his intentions are bad, he's bad. I mean, so the, the, you, yeah. you, you view just a clear line of separation between the, the person himself and whatever consequences there are in the world. That's right. That's how I would view it. When people argue for consequentialism, they often discount intentions. Like they, they basically, they, they just want to know about body count. You know, so if, if more people died, I mean, this, this really comes up when we talk about collateral damage in time of war. And this is actually a topic I, I want to move to. So maybe we can just, we can keep talking about the role of intention in this context. Let's just ask the, the more basic question first. How do you view violence and the, the ethics of violence? What, when is violence morally justifiable in, in your view? Um, I'm not a pacifist, so I think that uh, violence can be justifiable when uh, the consequences of not using violence are significantly worse than using it. Um, so uh, the general idea of uh, defensive war is normally justifiable because if you don't, if you're not ready to go to war in defense, then aggressors are simply going to be able to walk over you and that's not going to be a better world. Uh, so that would be one case in which I think the use of violence is, is normally justifiable. I mean, not always, I guess you can imagine cases where uh, actually allowing the aggressor to take over your country is better for the inhabitants of the country than um, waging war, because if you wage war, let's say everybody will get killed. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, there's a, there's a normally sort of qualifier in that. Um, I also think that, uh, that nations with strong military forces have a responsibility to protect, uh, people everywhere in the world against genocide and against, uh, large scale crimes against humanity. So, um, I support the idea, which has now been accepted by the United Nations, uh, that there is a responsibility to protect people. That responsibility normally would fall on the government of, uh, of each and every country. But if that government either uh, fails to prevent genocide or crimes against humanity, or if it itself is causing genocide or crimes against humanity, then I think... Uh, there is a justified case for intervention, even, including military intervention, obviously, which involves the use of violence. Um, I'd like to see that authorized by the United Nations. I think that the idea of one nation taking its own actions in order to uh, decide when something is a sufficiently serious crime against humanity, for example, or when something is a case of genocide to intervene, um, I think that has dangerous precedents because countries will uh, intervene where it's in their own political interests, where it's part of realpolitik to intervene, um, as well as where there's some pretext that they're intervening to prevent genocide or crimes against humanity. Uh, so I'd like to see this, I'd like to see generally this happen as a result of the uh, a vote in the United Nations somewhere. Under the present system, it would have to be in uh, the Security Council, but um, uh, you know, perhaps eventually there'll, there'll be different mechanisms by which this can take place. So do you share my view of pacifism here? Because pacifism has this reputation for being not only somewhere on the moral high ground, but if you can hold the view really just 
imagined to be this impregnable moral position of, of virtue, probably as a result of, of Gandhi's reputation. But when you look at the realities of our world and the, the kinds of, of antagonists we have faced in the past and, and could face in the future, pacifism, in my view, especially when you have an alternative, seems just a starkly immoral position. It seems to be just a willingness to let the most sadistic and evil people on earth do anything they want whenever they want. And even if you had the power to stop it, you are more committed to not getting your hands dirty. How do you think about pacifism? Yeah, I think um, the, what you said is, is, is pretty much right. I don't think it's a position that has the high moral ground. I mean, you, you could see it in some way as a, a noble position uh, when people are prepared to uh, not respond to violence in the way that Gandhi did, as you mentioned, or Martin Luther King. Um, we can see that as vastly better than um, trying to resist force with force, especially if you're going, if you know that you're going to be overwhelmed, as of course Gandhi would have been, and as more militant uh, African American movements uh, were to the extent mm -hmm. that they existed. Um, so, in that sense, being prepared to take the truncheon blows of the racist cops or of the British or whatever. Um, and not resist shows uh, a certain moral courage. Um, and in those particular circumstances, of course, it, it was actually effective. Um, but that's because the powers that be in those cases, the British in India and, uh, uh, you know, white US, um, mm. did restrain themselves to some extent. Yeah. If they had been like the Nazis, um, that would have been the end of Gandhi. That would have been the end of Martin Luther King. Um, they would have disappeared into concentration camps, obviously, and, and not emerged. Um, so uh, that will work in some circumstances. And in those circumstances, I'm all in favor of it. Um, good. It's a good way of bringing about change. But uh, to regard it as a universally applicable philosophy that can deal with all threats of aggression, no matter from whom they come, seems to me to be hopelessly naive. And Gandhi is rumored to have recommended that the Jews walk willingly into the gas chambers so as to arouse the world to the enormity of Hitler's crimes. I say rumored. This I have this from from something Orwell wrote about Gandhi. I don't believe I've seen that seen that confirmed anywhere else. No, I've never heard of that as a as a Gandhi quote. I must say. Obviously, the the contradiction there, whether or not Gandhi said it, it's you know, obviously it's possible to believe such a thing, but. You then have to ask, what should the world do once aroused? If you have a world filled with pacifists of the Gandhian sort, well, then, then we would be living in, in the thousand-year Reich. This issue about violence and, and state violence is interesting to me, because when I think about expanding the circle of moral concern and becoming more and more sensitized to the problem of collateral damage in time of war, as we are, and I, and I think we would both feel that that's almost an intrinsic good to, to want to reduce collateral suffering and death as much as possible when when using violence but it there's a kind of there's an asymmetry here that becomes troubling because when you think about certain kinds of enemies who have not expanded their circle right that gives them a kind of leverage that we don't have or at least we're in the process of of losing and so there there, there are many asymmetries here that I think about, you know, you just think about the use of human shields. You know, you have the, those who use human shields, and then you have those who are deterred by their use to one or another mm -hmm. degree. So, I mean, one, one side 
is making this extraordinarily callous and cynical use of the other side's greater moral concern for human life. And it's actually effective. And if you imagine reversing things, it's, it's ridiculous. So if you imagine the Americans or the Israelis using American or Israeli non-combatants as human shields to deter jihadists, well, then that becomes like some grotesque Monty Python sketch, right? I mean, it, just, it wouldn't work right. and it would be just, it would be laughable. I mean, you would just see, you know, hilarity on the side of the jihadists. And, or you consider, you know, the prisoner swaps between Palestinians and Israelis, where the, the Palestinians can demand a thousand of their prisoners in exchange for one Israeli captive. Now, perhaps there's another way of, of viewing this, but it seems on its face to reveal a, a three-order of magnitude difference in how the Palestinians and Israelis value a human life or, you know, one of their own human lives. And I mean, there's, there's just endless examples from this sort of conflict. So, you know, the Al-Qaeda training manual recommended to their followers that, you know, if you, if you get imprisoned, your infidel jailers will be too squeamish to torture you. And there's so much moral condemnation of torture on their side because they're, they're such an effete society that you just you need only complain that you were tortured to the Red Cross and you'll just throw these people into fits. So just get get if you get arrested, just complain you were tortured and they'll start you know attacking themselves over your case. And so the problem that I see is that you know when your enemy has no scruples, your own scruples become another weapon in his hand. And I wonder whether there are certain possible conflicts that we are becoming less and less equipped to fight because of the moral progress we've made. And I just, I just wonder how you think about that. That's certainly a possibility. Um, yes. I mean, there may be cases where uh, the enemy is so willing to uh, commit atrocities and so threatening to us that uh, we have to do things that we would rather not do. So you mentioned the case of, of human shields, for example. So if uh, somebody has taken uh, humans hostage and is using them as shields and is likely under the cover of those human shields to uh, let off a bomb, let's say, in a populated area that will kill far more people than uh, the, the, the number of human shields who have been taken, uh, and the only way we can stop that bomb going off is by being prepared to shoot through the human shields, in other words, killing the human shields, then uh, that's what we should do. Um, mm. We should do so uh, very reluctantly, of course, as a last resort. Uh, we ought to feel repugnance at the thought of killing innocent people who are shields. But um, we do have to look at the, at the, the larger consequences of not acting and uh you know there certainly could be such cases i'm not sure whether there there have been um can't think of a good example off the top of my head but it's it's quite possible that there are such cases and uh this is going to be the problem with uh dealing with completely unscrupulous enemies in an age in which uh they can easily get weapons and they can easily uh reach places that uh, in a previous age they might not have been able to reach. Do you think World War II would have been such a case? I mean, do, could we have fought World War II with our current ethics and won? And I, I'm thinking in particular of things like, and, I, and I'm, not a, I'm not a military historian, so I'm unaware of the 
the strategic or tactical necessity of everything we did there. But when you think of actions like the endless bombing of cities like Dresden and Tokyo and or the or obviously the our use of nuclear weapons, Hiroshima being probably the the only defensible one, if it is defensible. Do, do you think that we could have won World War II with our current the current tuning of our ethics? I do think we we could have beaten Nazi Germany. Uh, yes, I, my reading of the military history of the Allied bombing of uh, German cities is that it was not particularly effective uh, in military terms. Um, uh, yes, obviously it caused some damage to transport and to uh, manufacturing, but um, uh, it didn't it didn't have a major impact on on the end of the war. Uh, and to some extent, of course, bombing civilians um, makes the civilian morale more determined to resist uh, the aggressor than not doing that. So the idea that you were going to break German morale by bombing the cities, which I think was uh, the rationale that was discussed in uh, Churchill's cabinet uh, at the time, uh, seems not to have been the case. The, the, the more interesting example, and it doesn't really relate to your question, which was about winning the Second World War, um, because I think we could also, have in the in the end, defeated Japan without uh, either the um, bombing of cities such as Tokyo or the use of nuclear weapons. But I think the cost, you know, most of the people who've looked at this suggest that the cost of um, using only conventional weapons to defeat Japan which would have involved an invasion of the Japanese islands and, of course, the accompanying bombing of a huge number of military targets that would no doubt have caused a lot of civilian deaths as well as, uh, you know, as so-called mm. collateral damage, um, foreseeable side effects of the bombing of military targets, um, plus the cost in American lives, of course, of the soldiers, um, that that would have been far higher than the total cost of uh, the bombs on Hiroshima and even on Nagasaki, which, as your remarks, I think, indicated, is more difficult to defend than the bomb on Hiroshima because mm. quite possibly the Japanese would have surrendered in a few more days uh, even without the bomb on, on Nagasaki. So yeah. um, so uh, that's an interesting argument. Uh, if you assume that... Uh, contemporary views about the morality of war would have prevented us dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. And let's assume as a result of that, over the next year or so, there would have been an invasion of uh, the Japanese home islands. Um, and let's say that the casualties would have been, well, just say five times as great as the casualties of even both bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So what would what should we think about that if if that is the case? Um, should we think that uh, that would justify the dropping of the bombs? Um, a lot of people would say no because they would say this was terror bombing. This was the deliberate targeting of civilians using people as a means to an end. The end being, of course, to persuade the Japanese government to surrender, um, and the means being the death of the innocent victims of those bombs. But mm. um, but if we assume that the casualties would have been five times higher and uh, we assume also that uh, this would have included both combatants and non-combatants, uh, I, I don't draw a really huge distinction uh, there, I guess, in this case, but, but let's just for the sake of making it easier, assume that there would have been five times as many 
civilians killed too. Um, then I think the dropping of the bomb was justified. Uh, you know, now, you, you might say there was something else altogether that could have been done. There's been discussions that uh, the Japanese government could have been invited to witness a, a testing of the bomb with all the destruction that that showed. I, again, don't know whether that was feasible, whether uh, that would have ever convinced the Japanese to surrender. So, but, but for the sake of the argument, assume that there was no option. It was either dropping the bomb or it was the invasion uh, by conventional forces with much higher uh, civilian as well as military casualties. Mm. Then I think dropping the bomb was the right thing to do. The possible objection there is that dropping a bomb intentionally on non-combatants that there are more ethereal costs that need to be put on the balance of consequences, that it's not just that body count. This is, this is what I often run into in talking about consequentialism. I, I think body count is rather often an insufficient measure of the complete consequences of doing one thing or another. And we have to, we, the sense that consequentialism isn't a good enough moral theory is usually the result of consequentialists not looking clearly at all of the possible or likely consequences that are, again, quite a bit more ethereal, but, but nonetheless real than body count. So to come to the classic example of you're in your doctor's waiting room, he knows he has five patients, who, all of whom need a, a organ transplant. You're the, just there for a checkup and are reasonably healthy. So he decides to anesthetize you and steal your organs and kill you and a very ugly version of the trolley problem. Most people or many people who reject consequentialism say, well, there's, there's no place to stand as a consequentialist to resist the slide into that kind of world because, look, you're saving lives. You know, you lost one and you saved five, so you saved a net four lives. But it's pretty obvious that none of us want to live in a world where at any moment you could be killed by your doctor once he's calculated that he can use your organs to better purpose. And, and so there, there are costs, there are consequences to the, you know, the, the fear and the paranoia and then the experience of having this done to your kids and all the rest that we don't want to absorb. And it's just that they're, they're not as clear cut as body count. Yeah, you're right. There are, there are certainly other consequences that need to be taken into consideration. Uh, in the case of you know, the, the, the Hiroshima bomb, um, and I should say it's, it's easy to say this in hindsight, uh, I'm not sure that the the larger consequences have been bad. Uh, mm. After all, um, there is the really important fact that uh, after the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course, no more nuclear bombs have been dropped in anger, uh, been dropped on uh, civilians or, or military targets for that matter. Um, over this period of, of whatever, what is it now? It's uh, 70 75 years yeah. or something like that did i 70 years 70 years i i guess um so that's a really good thing and it's quite possible that the fact that the bomb was dropped uh, at least one of them was dropped and people could see how devastating it was how terrible it was how the radiation illness lingered and the, the damage um, maybe that's the reason why um there have been no further bombs dropped so uh it's possible otherwise that this weapon would have been used in some other conflicts uh, that we've had. And uh, it's, diffi it's difficult to say. So, so what do you do with that? It seems that the tally of consequences is on some level always open-ended, which is to say that there's nothing 
that is so bad on its face that it might not have a silver lining, right? So now we're talking about the silver lining in the the mushroom cloud of Hiroshima. As you say, there may have been all of these benefits for having horrified ourselves and the world by actually using nuclear weapons. We're much better stewards of nuclear weaponry now. The Cold War remained cold. Who knows what would have happened if we hadn't seen the horrors of Hiroshima? What do you do with the fact, and again, this is a a fairly common objection to consequentialism, that the votes are never finally and fully in, it seems. What do you do with that? Yeah, um, obviously, uh, you just have to predict as well as you possibly can the consequences. And as the consequences get further and further out, um, and they become quite uncertain, and you could speculate that there'll be good consequences, and you can speculate that there'll be bad consequences, um, you just have to say, uh, the probabilities are, are, are so uncertain here that we should not take account, there's nothing to take account of there. We have to go with the consequences in the nearer future that we can predict. So um, I think, in fact, what I was saying about the possible good consequences of the Hiroshima bomb in terms of deterring further use of nuclear weapons was really by way of cancelling out Mm. what you had said about the possible uh, uh, bad consequences of it in terms of the, uh, if you like, the greater acceptability of terror bombing or, or the views that what it says about our attitudes to innocent human beings and so on. Um, and in that sense, I think it would, was reasonable to say, we don't know what those consequences are going to be. Let's look at what the toll is likely to be from the bomb. And let's also look at what the toll is likely to be from uh, an invasion, from any other means that we have of defeating Japan. And uh, if the toll from the bomb is lower than that of any other means of defeating Japan, um, then perhaps it's reasonable to go ahead. Now, now let me say that I, I'm not saying that this is actually historically what happened, because yeah. clearly, historically, what happened, um, and I think pretty much always does happen in war, is that the fact that these were Japanese civilians meant that their lives counted rather little. The fact that um, a number of the lives lost, a substantial number probably, through an invasion of the Japanese islands uh, would have been American lives. Um, that counted for a great deal. Right. And so very likely there wasn't any such calculation made of the total death toll in which uh, all of these lives are given equal weight. But ideally, and this may seem you know, utopian given the passions that war arouses, ideally that would be the kind of calculation you would make. As we're getting close to our two-hour mark, I realize we had only scheduled two hours for this call, and it seems like two weeks might be insufficient to cover all these topics of interest. I want to ask you just quickly about various moral principles. Is there an important moral distinction between acts of omission and acts of commission? I mean, certainly, we certainly act as though there were. So, how does and this, and your your famous shallow pond example put some pressure on this here? So, how how do you think about the difference between not saving a life that would be very easy for you to save and taking one? actively. And this obviously also relates to end-of-life considerations of the sort you mentioned, the difference we we seem to hold on to between removing life support and passively letting someone die versus actively killing them, which in, in many cases might be the more merciful thing to do. Yes. Yeah, so um, my view is that the, the distinction between 
uh, killing and letting die or between uh, acts and omissions, it's put in different ways, um, is not itself uh, of great intrinsic significance. Uh, it may be a marker for other things of more significance, like it may be a marker for motives, for instance. Um, so if somebody were to say to me, uh, suppose I say, look, you should give to this effective charity. Um, let's, let's be specific. You should give to the Against Malaria Foundation because it will distribute bed nets in places where there's a lot of malaria and where children die from malaria. And if you donate what I know you can afford to donate to the Against Malaria Foundation, they will use it to distribute bed nets and you will be saving at least one child's life. And, and that's, that's factual. I think that is a real organization and a real mm -hmm. example. Uh, and let's say the person doesn't do that, right? So then that person has, in one sense, let a child die. Do I think of that person exactly the same as somebody who traveled to uh, Africa, shot a small child and then traveled back to the United States? Of course not. Um, uh, I know that uh, there's a huge psychological difference in uh, th that person, that many of us are apathetic or don't care enough, um, don't feel psychologically drawn to help people who we can't even see. Um, but for someone to actually have the, the malice and the will to travel, to find a child, to kill that child, is, uh, it has to be a completely horrible, depraved person. Mm. So sometimes the distinction between acts and omissions will signal something like that. Why did this person go out of their way to kill? Whereas in the other case, they simply didn't do enough to save a life. Um, but then let's look at another case, um, the medical case that you mentioned. So... Um, an infant has been born uh, prematurely and has had a very severe uh, bleeding in the brain, a hemorrhage. The doctors do a scan of the brain. They find that all of the parts of the brain that um, are associated with consciousness, like the cortex, have been irreversibly destroyed. Um, now, there's two possible things that might happen in, in these circumstances. One might be that the doctors after discussion with the parents, say, look, your child really has a hopeless future. They'll, they'll survive if we continue to treat them, but they'll just lie in bed um, all day and, and never be able to communicate with anyone, probably never have any conscious experiences at all, uh, have to be fed through a tube and so on. And, 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 and the doctors will then say, and the parents will usually agree, so we could withdraw the respirator. Your baby is too small to breathe on, on his own. We can withdraw the respirator and your baby will die. And parents will typically say, if you think that's best doctor, then I'm okay with that. Uh, and the baby will die. Now that is seen as a letting die, uh, as an allowing to die, not as a killing. On the other hand, it might have happened that um, because it took some time to carry out the diagnosis, because the baby was particularly vigorous and so on, um, that the baby no longer needs a respirator. Um, so the prognosis is exactly the same. The baby is never going to communicate in any way, probably never going to be conscious. He's going to have to be fed through a tube and lie on a bed. Mm. But you can't bring about the baby's death by withdrawing the respirator. Um, and let's just say that there's nothing else you can do that will bring about the baby's death. The baby is otherwise, apart from this massive and irreparable brain damage, the baby is otherwise healthy. Now, I think that if you're prepared to say that it was justifiable to withdraw the respirator, you ought to be prepared to say it would be justifiable to give the baby a lethal injection so that the baby dies without suffering. There is no moral difference. In both mm -hmm. cases, you know exactly what the consequences of your action will be. 
in both cases, your intention is to bring about the death of the child. Your motivation is equally, I would say, equally good, equally reasonable in both cases. Um, so the means is, is, is really irrelevant. But legally, of course, one is murder and the other is, well, maybe it's slightly gray in some countries, but anyway, it's, it's done in every neonatal intensive care unit in, in every major city in the United States. Right. Um, and nobody ever gets prosecuted for it. So uh, it seems to be legally acceptable. Um, but that's, as I say, that, that, that's, that's a case where I would think uh, we ought to be able to accept active steps on, on the basis of saying it's, it's no different from the, from the other case. And certainly there are cases where the active step is the one that, that bypasses an immense amount of suffering. Right where the passive Absolutely. one. Absolutely, that's right. In some other cases where there is some consciousness, not exactly the case I described, but where right. there is some consciousness, I do know of cases where people will say, you know, no, we can't actually take active steps to end life. But if the the baby gets pneumonia, um, we won't give antibiotics, um, and so then the baby will suffer a lingering death from pneumonia mm -hmm. over uh, days or maybe even a couple of weeks. Um, you know, which is a horrible thing and a pointless thing to do if you decided that it's better that the baby should die. Um, you know, you're, why let the baby suffer in this way? I want to go back to the issue of the, the shallow pond. And I know our listeners are, are familiar with this argument because I spoke about it with Will McCaskill. So you admit that there's a difference. It would take a very different sort of person to go to Africa with the intention of killing someone than merely decline to buy a bed net when told on good information that this would save a human life. Those are very different people. But I think you're saying that it's natural for us to view them as different. And because it requires actually a, a, a different psychology to do one versus the other, they are different. But if we abstract away from those differences and talk about public policies and what governments should do, then the, the act and omission difference shouldn't be morally salient to us anymore. Is that where you're headed with that? I'm not going to say that it shouldn't be at all morally salient because there are questions in what governments do in terms of the examples that they set. Um, but I do think it's very serious that governments allow people to die when they could prevent them, when they have the resources to prevent them. Hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so I certainly think that the, the governments of the wealthier nations of the world should be getting together and... Uh, developing policies to eliminate preventable child deaths and preventable suffering from diseases. Um, they did make a reasonable effort in terms of the Millennium Development Goals to reduce suffering and progress was made. The number of children dying fell quite significantly during that period, as did uh, uh, the number of people in extreme poverty. Uh, and that's a good thing. But um, uh, I'm concerned whether sufficient progress is continuing to be made. I think uh, more progress could have been made even in that period, although some progress was made. Uh, and I think we should be doing more. Uh, and that applies to governments, but it also applies to individuals. I think all of us who can afford to donate to effective charities um, ought to be doing that because the governments are not doing enough. How do you view the ethical significance of proximity, if there is any. I mean, obviously, there's a, an immense psychological significance that this starving person on my doorstep is different 
certainly more salient than the starving person in a distant country whose existence I know about, at least in the abstract. Presumably you think that that difference is, is far bigger than it, it should be, but is there any ethical significance to proximity, the problem in your backyard as opposed to the problem an ocean away? Um, well, I'd say not to proximity in itself again. Um, we can perhaps be more confident about what we're achieving when things are in our backyard and we actually can see what's happening. We can talk to the people who are affected by it. But we do have very good research now about uh, effective nonprofit organizations that are trying to help people far away. Um, uh, so uh, there's organizations like GiveWell that mm. do research on effective charities. Um, there's an organization I founded called The Life You Can Save. Uh, and it has a website uh, which lists charities that we've vetted and some some of it draws on GiveWell's research, some of it draws on other research uh, so that uh, we recommend effective charities. And, and if you can have a high level of confidence in the effectiveness of what you're doing, then it's not very different morally. As you correctly said, it is very different psychologically, but morally it's not very different from... Um, things that are going on in your backyard. Given that it is so different psychologically, I mean, presumably if, if I told you that there's a starving person by my front door today that I just stepped over on the way to this podcast because I was, you know, I'm busy, you would view me with something close to horror and repugnance and would be right to. But if I told you that I, I got yet another appeal from a good charity, which I didn't act on, you would just view me as a uh, more or less psychologically normal, if somewhat aloof person. Do you view our moral progress personally and collectively as a matter of collapsing that distance as much as psychologically possible so that we really can't put distant suffering out of sight and out of mind? Yes, I do think that's an indicator of, of progress. Uh, and it's, you know, the psychology is understandable, of course. Uh, our ancestors for millennia, for perhaps uh, hundreds of thousands of years, if we go back even, could go back even to social primates before there were humans at all, um, these ancestors lived in small social groups, face-to-face -face groups where they knew people and they would uh, help others and cooperate with them in various ways. But they had no relations, perhaps even to people who lived across the mountain range um, in the next valley. Uh, and now suddenly, suddenly in terms of evolutionary time anyway, we live in a world where we have instant communications, where we have uh, very rapid delivery of assistance, where we have good ways of working out what is going to help people uh, most effectively. And uh, our psychology has not changed uh, rapidly enough to cope with this. So, so that's why the psychology is, is as you described it. But we should be thinking about this issue. We should be uh, becoming more aware of it. And uh, we should be, again, using our abilities to think and to reflect and to reason to recognize that um, distance isn't really ethically relevant and uh, that sometimes, in fact, quite often, uh, we can be much more cost-effective in helping people in developing countries. Uh, I mean, think of it. Think of it this way: um, the World Bank poverty line is a dollar ninety per day, so let's say roughly seven hundred dollars a year. 
the U.S. poverty line for an individual is uh, over $11,000 per year. So suppose you've got $1,000 to spare that you could donate to somebody. To whose life are you going to make a bigger difference? Mm. Getting somebody in the U.S. to go from 11000 to 12000 or getting someone somewhere else to go from 700 to 1700 uh, I think the answer to that is, is quite obvious. Um, and it, that does reflect a difference in cost effectiveness, whether it's money we're giving or whether it's uh, anti-malaria nets or whether it's uh, training in how to be more productive in your uh, farming practices or uh, whatever it might be. Well, I, I realize we're coming up against our hard stop in time. I want to ask maybe two more quick questions here and apologize to many of our listeners for not getting to many of the topics they would want us to have touched. I know the vegans and vegetarians are going to be outraged that we haven't spent any significant time on non-human animals, but I think our views on the, those topics are pretty well understood. But I want to ask you one question in that area. What if certain animal lives, let's say the life of a happy cow, are net positive lives, which is to say it's better to have existed than to not have existed as a happy cow? And if we had an appropriate regime of raising cows for slaughter, we would be producing some billions of, of happy cows or cows that are happier than certainly anything that's in our factory farming system and happier than, let's say, most wild animals, you know, so it's as happy as, as a cow can be, and it wouldn't exist but for our practice of raising it for slaughter. How would you view the ethics of eating those cows? You can, you know, it's possible to def defend from an animal welfare point of view uh, a, a situation like that in which the, the cow is having a, a really good life, the slaughter is humane, uh, and, uh, and so on. But um, I think in, in practice, it's, uh, I'm not saying that there are no situations like that, but it's actually quite difficult. And there are other factors as well that, that need to be taken into account. So um, you, you mentioned a cow. I don't know if this is therefore an assumption that this is a dairy cow rather than an animal being raised for beef. Mm. But, um, but cows only give milk if they are made pregnant at regular intervals, roughly each year. Uh, and if their calf is then taken away from them so that the milk can be used by humans uh, and the, ca the calf will uh, often be slaughtered very young for veal. If it's a male, if it's a female, it may be, she may be reared for um to to join the dairy herd so um but but the separation of the the cow and her calf causes suffering i think everybody who's observed this will see that uh cows bellow for their calves uh the calves look for their mothers so in in the dairy industry it's actually pretty difficult to have these kinds of uh circumstances and still have a commercial operation that produces milk for humans hmm. um it might be more feasible in the in the beef industry. But, um, but the other factor that ought to be taken into account here is, uh, and this is particularly true of, of, of uh, cattle and other ruminant animals, is there's a significant greenhouse gas component to, uh, to ruminants. They mm -hmm. produce methane. And uh, the fact that they're out on grass doesn't help that at all. In fact, it makes it even worse than if they were in a feedlot eating grain. Uh, because they have to digest more grass to put on the number of pounds of, of beef that uh, 
they will eventually put on before being sent to market. Uh, so the the longer period of digestion leads to more methane being produced. So that's a I think a serious obstacle to thinking of ethical meat consumption, uh, not just based on the animal welfare perspective, uh, which in some circumstances you might be able to satisfy, but uh, based on the overall picture of what we're doing to the planet. Has anyone published a, a reasonably complete taxonomy of animal suffering where you could sort of rank order the the wrongs you commit by participating in various practices, eating chicken versus fish versus cow, you know, dairy versus beef consumption, et cetera? Uh, I'm not sure about an actual uh, ranking or attempt to quantify. Uh, I've, in fact, got a student at Princeton who's trying to compare, you know, how many how much chicken suffering goes on and how do you compare that with suffering of humans, for example. It's a very difficult task and it's interesting that he's even attempting that. Mm. Um, in the book, The Ethics of What We Eat, that I wrote with Jim Mason, we do describe various forms of animal production and I suppose it would be possible from those descriptions to get some sort of implied ranking. Um, and there may be something that animal charity evaluators have done. Animal charity evaluators is a kind of a give well of the animal advocacy uh, organization. So it, it researches and uh, ranks the top-rated, most effective animal charity. Uh, so that's worth looking at, and there's extensive blogs, and maybe someone has tried to do this in in some of those blogs. Um, my own view would be that clearly it's it's the intensive factory farming that is the worst, so when people uh, say, oh, I've stopped eating red meat, I'm, I'm only eat chicken now, um, mm. I think they've actually, their diet has got worse. I think, you know, there's a lot more chickens that they have to eat. Um, I had an article uh, on this with uh, Karen Dawn, a friend in the Los Angeles Times just last Sunday. Right, I saw that, yeah. Uh, right. Um, so, you know, you're responsible for a lot more suffering, a lot more chickens, and chickens are virtually all factory farmed. And uh, the conditions are quite horrible. I won't go into it now. Um, but uh, you would admit that there's a there's got to be a hierarchy of moral concern based on the actual or possible experience of these animals. So, for instance, if it's just a fact that pigs suffer much more than cows, then we do more wrong in mistreating and killing and otherwise immiserating pigs than cows based on the, the actual facts of their experience, right? It's, it's got to be anchored to... Certainly, yeah. certainly. It, 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 yeah, if there is a fact about that, and, and if we can know that fact, then uh, we ought to focus on, on the animals, you know, well, we ought to focus on the animals who can suffer most and regard that as a, as a higher priority. Yeah. Okay, sorry to keep you past your, your hour here, but one more quick question yeah. that just has to be a, a capsule to your views on this subject, but how do you think about future generations and our, our, our ethical responsibility toward beings or people that don't exist. Why would it be a bad thing if we all died in our sleep tonight and painlessly and, and future generations were uncreated? So I, I, I do think that there is uh, value in human life when it's lived at a high quality. And uh, I'm optimistic enough to think that uh, we will in the future solve uh, some of the serious problems that face us now and that uh, we will continue to make progress in terms of reducing suffering, reducing uh, unnecessary violence and uh, 
giving people a better life. So the loss there would be the loss of, of all future generations, at least in this corner of the universe, um, and of their uh, and of their happiness and of the fulfillment of their lives. And uh, you know, we were talking right at the beginning of this conversation about objective values. Hmm. Uh, I I think there would be a loss of objective value in that sense. The universe would be a worse place um, to the extent of those lives not being lived. Yet another thing we agree about. Well, listen, Peter, you've been extremely generous with your time, and it's it's really been great to talk to you. And just finally, tell people where they can find you online, on your Twitter address, or anything else you would like to be publicly available. Uh, sure, yes, I, I do tweet as uh, Peter Singer. You should be able to, to find me on Twitter. Um, I also have a uh, website, and the website is petersinger.info.info. Uh, you can find things about me there. Uh, please do look at the organization that I founded, thelifeyoucansave.org, uh, in terms of looking for effective charities to which you might give. And uh, I also recommend, if you're interested in uh, animal issues, look at animalcharityevaluators.org and uh, support the organizations that they're recommending. Uh, I'm not saying that the organizations that they're not recommending are not good. Some of them are, but um, I do think you can have, be confident that the ones they are recommending uh, certainly are good. I'll have all those links on my blog where this podcast will be embedded. So Terrific. Thank you. Again, thank you, Peter, and I hope our paths cross again soon. I certainly hope so. Thanks very much, Sam. It's been great talking with you. <laughs>